Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored. My chance to interview some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. This episode is made possible by the great people at Wildridge Boats. For the past two years, my lightweight Wildridge has carried me through super skinny water to places I'd never been able to experience before. True to form, again, the Wooldridge family makes similar ventures possible here on Anchored. George Cook is one of the most well-known anglers in the Pacific Northwest. While he is likely best known as a sales rep for Sage, Rio, and multiple other substantial companies, he is also a skilled Chinook salmon angler and the inventor of the Alaska Boo Fly Series. In this episode, I meet up with George at his home in Auburn, Washington, where we talk about Alaska, how the popsicle fly came to be, and the definition of fly fishing in George's eyes. Well, April, uh, I got started in the uh, early 80s. I taught fly casting at uh, Washington State University uh, while I was going to school there under a guy by the name of uh, Dave Ingebretson, who at the time was the uh, Western editor for Fly Fisherman magazine. And I just sauntered into his office one day as a, uh, late in my freshman year and asked him if he'd ever had a TA right. for his class. And he looked at me and I told him how I knew him. I'd seen him on the Henry's Fork over the years in junior high and high school. And uh, he looked at me and he said, uh, well, no, but I think it's a good idea. I'll see you next semester. So I taught that class with him for three years while I was a student there, which gave me a little bit of an in with uh, Randall Kaufman. 
and uh, who I would work for for a chunk in the 1980s in the Bellevue Washington store. Uh, Supplemented that stuff with guiding in Alaska and Bristol Bay, which is where the popsicle came from. Uh, A semi-drunken concoction of um, uh, cherry, orange, and grape, of which Randy Stetzer, who's a longtime industry guy, happened to be there when I tied it. And he goes, well, what's that? I go, I don't know, man. It's cherry, orange, and grape. It's a bullet pop. Let's call it the popsicle. So, bada bing, bada boom. It's there. It is. You know, it's part of an overall series of flies called the Alaska Booze. There's one called a Showgirl. There's a Pixies Revenge, a Volcano, the Aleutian Queen. I think there's seven or eight of them all, all told. And, and they essentially started the Marabou craze. And this is we're talking 1983, 84. And um, that, that kind of put, I'm not going to say it put Marabou on the map, but it, it put a stamp on Marabou as, as really a, a fly beyond the traditional hair, feather wing, steelhead fly that, you know, had ruled the roost, you know, for time memorial. Um, obviously, in your travels with, you know, people like Jerry French, who I know is on your docket, um, maybe a Scott Howell would be, and of course the, you know, the uncomparable Ed Ward. Um, these guys, along with Deck Hogan and some of the, Mike Kinney, you know, I could sit here and just rattle it off. Those guys kind of took the idea of the, of the, the popsicle, that style fly and took it to the next level in the truder form of which, you know, we all kind of look to and rely on as steelhead and kingfishermen these days. Mm-hmm. From there, I got recruited to Sage by the legendary rep, Les Icorn, who called on us at Kaufman's. Les was at, at Sage at the very beginning. Uh, he recruited me to Sage, where I worked in-house for a couple of years and then received a rep job which I've done since 1990. You're one of the more popular reps. When I chat with people, and your name comes up all the time. So you're Sage, are you Sims? No, I was Sims for 16 years until Sage and Sims had the great headbutting contest of 2009 where we got to pick A or B. And uh, my longtime staff member, Eric Neufeld, ended up with Sims, and rightfully so. He deserved it. He had all the, the tools and he was the best man for the job and got it. And I stayed with Sage Rio Reddington because at the end of the day, I really identified myself then, now, really forever as a tackle rep, as mm-hmm. a hard, hard tackle rep. So in the end, that all worked out. But Sage, Rio, Reddington, Tibor, Smith, Smith Optics of Sun Valley in the fishing division, mm-hmm. Solitude Flies out of California. Uh, Blackstrap, which is a buff company out of Bend, Oregon, in Sitka gear on the hunting end. Oh, cool. And as you probably saw walking around my my house here, um, <laughs> hunting's the what I call my other life. There is a bow with a bunch of arrows in between us right now. Well, there's all sorts of bows. and <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's somewhat of a virtual crazy. armory here. But I'm staring at three heads of... But a deer? No, those are giant whitetails. In fact, the middle one is the state record, which I killed in 1985. Unreal. Just out of college, out of Washington State, and still the Boone and Crockett number one whitetail from 
the state of Washington. And uh, do you find that you hunt more than you fish these days? It's seasonal. It, oh. oh yeah, I get asked that all the time, you know, and it's seasonal. You know, basically from Labor Day to New Year's Day, I'm generally hunting. Right. Um, you know, here we are on June seventh, and um, I'll be in Alaska tonight, yeah. and uh, you know, tis the season. So rainbows, you know, be at the Kenai, the Knack in Bristol Bay, and then I'll be on the Nishigak here in a couple of weeks oh, for I King. So Michigan. it's it's all it's all seasonal. It's a mm-hmm. seasonal game, and tis the season right now for the spay rod and the swing for Bobo and Kingy, but. Uh, there's a lot of deer in the U.S. West right now that, that are on notice. Mm. Yeah, their time will be coming. <laughs> I'm a little scared so. for them. So tell me about guiding then. When did you start to transition from guiding into primarily repping? Um, that 1990 period kind of marked a change from being retail at the longtime Kaufman Streamborn Bellevue store. And I guided here in Washington State, and I still do to a very limited degree largely on a ranch in eastern Washington with some incredibly fertile and productive lakes that I've done for 28 years. You may have heard of the Isaac Ranch over the years. I'm the founding outfitter there. So you are still guiding. Yeah, I guide. I, it's I celebrity that. guest guide trips, I call them. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do a little bit in eastern Washington just on this one ranch, which is now called Back to the Wall. Mm-hmm. I've had I've had your fellow... British Columbian down there, Brian Chan, a couple oh, times. Oh, cool, yeah. It's, it's arguably the best lake fishing in Washington, and it, it'll rival some of your better BC stuff. What kind of trout are in there? Like what's Kamloops. Yeah. Kamloops. So they introduced then. Um, huh? Are they triploids? They're triploids, largely because that's all we can find in the hatchery scene nowadays. Fair enough, yeah. And they don't tend to grow as fast as non-triploids in that first three years, but they tend to live longer, and, and based on that, we stretch them into that six to eight year old range, and inevitably, we see when we get some fish at five and a half, six and a half, seven and a half, we'll see a reasonable number of these things that'll get twenty eight to thirty one inches. You know, just not a lot different than your your best BC lakes, be it private or or fertile public water. Mm-hmm. So we've been blessed with this fishery. I just finished my twenty eighth year guiding, which is um, well, that's a long time. That is a long time. It's a long time. So why are you continuing to guide for trout then and not steelhead or salmon? I mean, you live in Alaska, right? No, I, I split my time between Washington and Alaska. Yes, yeah, steelhead, um, salmon, and you're going for trout. Why? Well, I, I like the lake game. It's a controlled environment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all repeats. So in a lot of ways, I'm just letting friends in the gate. Okay. Um, you know, I keep a current guide license in Washington. I don't guide the anadromous thing simply because it. I really don't have time for it as a rep to really, you know, play that game requires a commitment to September, October, mm-hmm. February, March. And, and those months are either uh, really assigned to the preseason process for some of these companies or in the case of the fall, as I already rattled off, Georgie's hunting. Yeah. And no Georgie's good. going hunting. Now, your lovely wife is from Alaska. She lives in Anchorage. Did yep. you live up there part-time before you'd met? No. You moved up there after. Well, I, again, I split my time between the two, and I've been doing this for since 2010. She's, mm-hmm. she's frankly got too good of a job to fool with her. <laughs> right. And, um, and she has possession of my giant panther cat. 
otherwise known as Shadow, the largest cat in captivity. How big is it in captivity? Unno- yeah, unknown weight. <laughs> the Panther Boy is an unknown weight. Oh, so, it's a good thing that yeah, uh, he's yeah. not here because Colby would probably. Oh, no, they'd be buds. They'd be down. Yeah, they'd probably be in the corner napping. Yeah, he's know. finally settled down. He's done his rounds now. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit. I'm just fascinated by your fly. And I just want to chat a little bit about the industry and the progression that you've seen flies really go through over time. You are from the era when the green butt skunk and the general practitioner and all of those really sparse summer run patterns were popular. So what were you fishing for? Were you primarily targeting salmon or steelhead or both or trout even with the, the flashier, you know, um, larger profile flies? Well, it's a great question, April. It, when I first started guiding in Alaska in 1982, our, our boxes that we arrived with as, as guides and anglers had kind of a mixed bag of traditional flies. You, you might have had something, you know, as, as, as an attractor, say a Skykomish Sunrise mm-hmm. or a, a Thor or an Umpqua Special. And, yeah. um, and then on the other hand, we 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 had some tarpon flies in our boxes, okay, and got it, got it. we had them not so much from the standpoint of of those colors, which you know a pattern like a cockroach would be a muted fly imitating a shrimp, whereas we would have you know an orange yellow one, and because it was a large profile, it was on a reasonably big hook. It had profile, it had color, it had movement. It had things that we, I think, envisioned that we needed to have, but yet we didn't have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you could see maybe a very simple marabou, you know, with a silver chenille body with a black wing, which is, was a deadly fly as a summer run fly in Washington State in the 1970s and 80s. And you'd see guys on the still Guamish fish and stuff like that but when you think of those flies from say vintage 1980 85 to well let's let's go back even further let's go six 1960 to 80 Mm -hmm. versus say 1990 to present it's been a it's been a massive massive transition yeah um and the first flies i tied up there the, the original fly in that series the one that started it all was one called a showgirl yeah and the showgirl was pink and purple and originally i tied it as a tarpon fly uh, I, used I tied to love it as fly. a that's a great yeah fly. i've got i've got some originals laying around somewhere and they are literally um they're tied on an atlantic salmon style hook mm-hmm. uh straight size one and they're tied tarpon style but yet they incorporated um pink and purple hackle it was essentially a, a scaled-down tarpon fly right. uh, with uh, purple flashaboo. And we tied these in Alaska, specifically on the Alagnac River, north of King Salmon, to catch chum salmon, oh, which okay. we fished for with, within those days, believe it or not, nothing but floating lines, unweighted flies. And, you know... But why change if it worked? Well, it worked fabulously. The, the, the only thing that threw... Uh, a fork in the spokes was there, there came a day at the vice and I distinctively recall this um, where I ran out of a particular feather color and I opted to tie the fly 
with marabou. Ah, okay. Opted yeah. to tie the fly with marabou. <laughs> and I tied it tarpon style, which didn't look particularly great with the marabou. Shifted it to the head. Right. And the Alaska boo was born, literally right there and then. Uh-huh. And then a series of colors came out of that. And the beauty of those flies, they were quicker to tie. Very quick, yeah. They, they fundamentally cast cleaner. They were more aerodynamic. Mm-hmm. They probably sunk a little bit better once they were, you know, um, you know, incurred wet out. And we continued to fish these things, believe it or not, on seven, eight, nine weight rods, Sage RPs were the rod of the day then. Rods with weight forward floating lines, nine to ten foot leaders cast across, men swing, and these fish would fluently run these things down and eat them, be it chums, silvers that would show up in August, and then the hordes of pink salmon on those years. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'd catch them all this way. Uh, We'd catch the occasional jack doing this. It wasn't a few years before we, you know, just started to fish some sink tips, some, you know, 10-foot, 15-foot type 3 stuff. Was that more productive? I think it was certainly more productive over the course of varying conditions. I mean, if you look outside today and you look at that sun and you think about a floating line, um, you know, with an anadromous fish, be it a chum salmon, a steelhead, a king, you know, you name the critter, sea run brown, sea run dolly, doesn't really matter. That's not a great combination. So the sink tip opened up, I think, a broader paint of the brush in terms of water depth, water speed, um, you know, sun versus cloud. You know, on cloudy days, it's all going your way with anadromous fish. Mm-hmm. You know, sign, please check here for rain. In any event, the sink tip came on board. And then, you know, right around, I think it was 1984, Jim Teeny, I know, is on one of your podcasts. He brought out the famous Teeny lines. And the Teeny lines... Uh, particularly the Teeny 300, a 24-foot sink tip and a 300-grain designation, changed the anadromous scene uh, throughout the West Coast as well as British Columbia and Alaska. It finally gave us a depth-charge sink tip that was castable versus lead core shooting mm. head concoctions that you know the inner sanctum you know played with but yet never tamed. And so Jim Teeny... Well, Every steelhead, every kingfisherman, even the spay rod anglers of today owe Jim a, a heartfelt gratitude of thanks because he brought the modern sink tip to the table and virtually everything that spawned thereafter in sinking lines was predicated on that. You know, I've had, I've had people say to me, the popsicle began the intruder revolution I think it I think it simply showed up at the right time and you know almost all those guys involved in the intruder Ed Ward, Jerry French, Scott Howe, Deck Hogan, all those guys guided on that same river system I was on called the Alagnac mm-hmm. in Bristol Bay. So we all shared a common thread and that was a river system in its returning salmon. So yeah, but those flies focused on Salmon, uh, largely chums, silvers, and then the rest of the, you know, the critters as they come, you know, kings here, pinks, not really sockeye. Sockeye are really, as you well know from, you know, your Fraser River fisheries, they're a very, very 
interesting fish and, uh, you know, have to be kind of dialed up as a separate animal with different techniques and getting things to fall into place. Techniques I don't actually... Yeah, well, you know... anymore these days. Yeah, well, you know, the average person fishing sockeye being on the Fraser, the Kenai in Alaska is basically playing an advanced game of flossing. Yeah, it's a harvestable fishery. But I can tell you, there are, there are times and places that we see them in Alaska. Um, and maybe the viewers and listeners will, can glean something here, but... We used to catch them pretty fluently in Bristol Bay when we could find them in water where they weren't moving, where they yeah. had stopped, and maybe they were either up, right? they were either just chilling mm-hmm. or they were even quasi daisy chaining. Yeah. And we could catch them on some flies that um, you might assimilate with fishing for American shad. Yeah, you know, like on the Columbia right now, or in, in Northern California watersheds. We, we could catch them on shad-like flies, you know, chartreuse hues. Mm-hmm. And then I, every year, and believe me, I'll be on the Kenai by the end of this next week. The sockeye and the Kenai, when they pull into little, you know, side frog water, just little, little edge stuff, and they stop. Mm-hmm. And the key word is stop. Right. When they stop, they will take a streamer that's being swung for trout far more fluently than you would ever, ever guess. Yeah, and they actually are taking, because I have sight fish for them when I used to guide on the Harrison. And if they're stopped and schooled, you'll, you'll watch them chase it down. Yep. It's shocking. And we catch them on sculpins, uh, probably catch them on black flies, um, you know, like the Willie Nelson or Larimer's loop, loop sculpin. But I've caught them on the Sheila sculpin, which is a tan hue fly. So they do, and it's a nice surprise because... You know, you'll catch a rainbow and, you know, 11 steps later, a dolly, and then four steps later, a big grab that turns out to be a bright sockeye that is generally immediately bonked over the head yeah. and provided to wifey, who, uh, <laughs> if you let that fish go, there will be a scowl that will last for hours. <laughs> yeah. What about beads? When did beads come into Alaska? Oh, the bead story. Yeah, boy, when you when you interview Mr. Kenny Morris, you've got to ask him that. <laughs> I cause will. He, uh, he played a big hand in that one. The bead thing got rolling 93 to 1995. And up until then, somehow, miraculously, glow bugs worked just fine. Uh, glow bugs had been kind of the call of the day, you know, a yarn ball, you know. Um, Doug of Aquaflies down there in California, you know, was the original proprietor of Doug's Bugs and had a lot to do with egg yarn and patterns and I can remember ordering stuff from him when I was a guide in Alaska and, and thereafter. Um, the bead thing got going largely over in some of the real, you know, high user rate rivers like the Moraine, Kulik, Brooks, um, Iliamna tributaries, Naknak tributaries, and it it kind of got going, and it was it was somewhat shunned by the old guard at a pretty high rate to begin with. Rather that be guides, anglers, shop owners, but eventually, you know, somewhat like indicator fishing that that has swept the last decade, uh, the bead thing did too, mm-hmm. and my most. Uh, 
I I had my aha bead <laughs> moment in Western Alaska, and I think this was in 1997. I was on the Connect Talk, which is in Western Alaska, and I'd fished the Connect Talk at, at a given point for 22 years in a row. And I was coming down a particular back channel that we called the Bat Channel. And I was coming down it with a typical glow bug, uh, salmon egg yarn color, size 8, the camp mesh. It's never not worked. It's always railed. And, and I'd come down this back channel. I'd probably gone 30 yards and hadn't touched a fish, not a fish. Right. It was almost as if, you know, Martians had landed and <laughs> taken all the dollies and rainbows, which I knew couldn't be the, the deal. And so I tied on a bead. I had a handful of beads. They were hand-painted by a guy in Anchorage by the name of Keith Graham, who you may may have heard of. And Keith had hand-painted these and given me some, and I had them in there. And they weren't in the starting lineup, but they were. I, I quickly assembled one, mm-hmm. made a cast. It wasn't fishing an indicator. I was just bottom-bouncing old-school style. And I caught a fish literally on the first cast and proceeded to rail um, and it was my aha moment to the to the bead, and I don't know if it what drove that. If if the selectiveness of those rainbows and dollies had you know they had flipped a switch, I don't know. But I do not believe I fished a glow bug since that day. Uh, it was pretty dramatic. Mm-hmm. I I kind of fought it. I'm going to tell you, I had fought it for three years. Like yeah yeah, I don't need this. You know, glow bug is. Still getting her done, and well, that day ended, and the bead day started, and and I think that happened to hundreds, if not thousands, of anglers, and it's transcended its way from Alaska, Washington, Oregon, Northern Cal, British Columbia, Michigan. Um, you know, I know a handful of guys that run the indicator with a bead uh, in Terra del Fuego with a yellow egg. Yeah, yeah. Come the month of April, and. Uh, they're probably not scoring a lot of style points or extra wine at dinner over that one, but it, it works. It can't, you know, there's nothing like bait, you know, bait, <laughs> bait's bait. Well, what's your argument? What's your opinion on, you know, fishing an indicator and a bead is really gear fishing. What's your take on that? Well, yeah, you know. I mean, is it fly fishing? Where do you draw the line? It, I think any time that a fly cast is involved, that the angler makes a fly cast. What about the guy who casts the line upstream? No, he dumps the line upstream, and then he proceeds to dump line off his reel into the water, and it drifts down. Is that fly fishing? Well, it's 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 a great debate. We can we can have this debate on on three subjects. We can have it on indicators. We can yeah. have it on tenkara. Yeah, and we oh, can yeah. have it on crossbows. We can have it on all three. <laughs> yeah. um, on the subject of the indicator, I think. For the angler who is still actively moving the line, roll casting, mending, back cast, he is still largely fly fishing. Now, he's he's spending an inordinate amount of time watching Bozo, as we used to say as guides in Alaska. Bozo goes down, you go up. Um, <laughs> you know, he's doing an inordinate amount of time watching the, the indicator, but he is still making movements associated with what you and I would see as fly fishing. Right. Now, is it is it fly fishing in a pure form? 
that we would, you know, walk onto the Henry's Fork in Idaho with a three, four, or five weight rod and a, a 12 foot leader and a dry fly. No, no, it's not. But it's, but it's all in the same family. And, you know, all of this kind of shows up in a big ball of, of, of the sport, which we all need, as you well know, you're probably one of the absolute leading individuals in this theater that, you know, we, if we're going to be conservationists, if we're going to look, be stewards, we have to all get along. It's the same thing in hunting, be it the archery guys, the rifle guys, the muzzleloader guys. If you're not on the same page, uh, somebody on the other end of the docket will be. So Yeah, there's a bigger concept. Yeah, that's kind of where I look at it. You know, the Tenkara thing. Um, that's interesting. I never even thought about that. <laughs> well, it's... Um, Tenkara, I think, is is an interesting aspect. I can tell you in the tackle industry, um, the hope was that it would bring a, a, a new wave of new people in. Mm-hmm. I will tell you it has not done that. It's not even come remotely close. What has it done? Well, what it's done, the guys that are buying those rods, and if Yvonne Chouinard wants to come out of this debate, you can tell him to get up early and pack a lunch. Um yeah is that the guys that are buying these rods, and we know this because we call on the shops, it's the veteran angler buying it because he, he knows a stream or a system or a creek where this not only would be applicable, but it would be fun. We're not seeing beginners buy it, at least not in a, in a manner that we can pinpoint in do my you, states. Do you think that's because beginners who get into fly fishing, though, they largely want to be doing the fly casting? I know that they love the romance of the casting itself. Do you think that maybe that's one of the reasons why it's not so appealing to beginners in your experience? Well, let's hope that that's the case, that... that the art, the craft, the science of casting, which is fly fishing. I mean, I had a, <laughs> I, I had a, a patron, a customer, walk up to me at the uh, Seattle show in February, and he goes, well, George, you, you know, what do you think of Tenkara? And I said, well, here's what I think. You want to shoot a bow? Get a bow. Don't get a crossbow. Get a bow. You want to shoot a bow? A bow involves drawing the bow. A crossbow does not involve drawing the bow. Tenkara does not involve casting. It involves dabbing. Um, So if you want to fly fish, you need to learn to cast because the game centers around casting. So if you want to fly fish, let's let's fly fish. If we want a cane pole, we can get you on an airplane to Austin, Texas, and we can go find you a creek and get you a little cane pole and get you playing Tenkara, Texas style, which was going on long before this hit, okay? Um, any viewers want to debate that, tell, tell them again, <laughs> get up early, bring a lunch. Um, but it's, I, I think Tenkara, it's, 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 it's not as cheap as it was purported. You know, we can have, you know, at Reddington and companies like Reddington, companies like echo that that are bringing some nice product to the table for the entry-level angler you know we've got outfits at reddington that you know for 149 dollars just add water Mm -hmm. and you're out there and we work on we begin to work on the craft of casting um you know so many of those people need to work on the craft and there's times when these indicator lads you know the flat billers you know, sometimes the, the roll casting skills are really good, but their fly casting skills are not so much because 
they've targeted that so hard. And granted, they're really good at it. I mean, uh, you know, Darth Vader walks, wades the river. Um, but, you know, you always got to kind of come back to casting because it's the root of the sport. And for much of what goes on, particularly in high demand fisheries, um, spring creeks, saltwater, that is the essence of the game and, and hence the master of the craft. What about the history of it all? I mean, was Tenkara way before fly casting? I mean, surely it would be. Dabbing predates everything, doesn't it? Yeah, I, it, I don't know enough about the history there to to speak upon it. I, I'm sure you can you can round up some people. Mr. Chenard certainly probably knows the history there. But, you know, we, as reps, as, as somebody that's been in this business since 1982, we judge things on one simple premise. What's that? Is it endearing? Is it endearing? Will it be here in five years? Um, and if it's here, will it be, you know, just this niche little ball game that's off in some corner that really never really caught. What if I don't, it's endearing, though, but it's not good for our sport or for a fishery? Well, I don't think you can look at something like Tenkara and say it's not... No, not Tenkara. It's not, but... but what about... Like, here's a prime example. So I've heard that on the OP, there's been a ton of people fishing indicators and, and beads. Now, I'm quite ignorant. That's one of the reasons I'm here in Washington doing these podcasts. I want to learn. So... I just never grew up fishing that way. I mean, I did. I grew up fishing that way, but I was fishing a center pin. That's right. Or a spinning rod with Power Pro. Yeah, right? So for me, um, I did grow up that way, but it just doesn't float my boat anymore. So, but what if that's endearing, but you're now catching, you know, three times the amount, and that's probably a ridiculous exaggeration, but what if you're catching too many fish, if you will, but it's endearing, but it's causing harm or it's detrimental? What, where do you stand then as a rep where you go, okay, I've got to put my integrity first? Or how do you balance your beliefs with business? Well, I think it, it all comes down to individual angler ethic. It, uh, you know, we, can, uh, we can have people fishing these methods. We do. And unless you see something really dramatic occur, which did occur in this part of the country some years ago where where nymph fishing with an indicator was banned straight up on the North Umpqua in oh. Oregon. Oh, I didn't know that. It, it got banned down there, not so much because of its effectiveness. It, it got banned because these anglers, uh, which you know were coming from largely from afar, I won't I won't single out a zip code. Um, <laughs> I'll just tell you they they come from an area prone to earthquakes. Um, <laughs> These these guys had a, a you know what had become a perpetual habit of of sitting on runs, sitting on pools. In the North Umpqua, has pools that in the summer and in the fall will have fish that are notoriously in those pools. And, and we're not talking one or two fish in a, in a simple glide or run, but rather you know a pot of fish. And these guys would, would basically just stand on these things and, and pound away, and inevitably, yeah, they would catch some. But they were clogging up a historical fishery by virtue of no movement. In other words, they had grown roots. They were sitting on these spots. Somebody wanted to come by and swing a green butt skunk or, or 
you know, skate a muddler and do some of the classic things that put the North Empois on the map. Well, these things were being held up by essentially, you know, folks that were camped out on runs. Mm -hmm. And that led to that. And the Olympic Peninsula is a different phenomena in that most of this indicator fishing, and it's fishing. I mean, let's, let's, let's be real. It's fishing, mm -hmm. and it's fly fishing. Um, you have your pros and your cons, and you have your fans and your pundits. Um, but nevertheless, it's going on out of boats. It's going on out of boats. Now, and you can look at that several ways. You can look at it, well, okay, these guys are doing it with fly rods. Yes, they're doing it in between runs. Yes, they're getting out in certain runs and running a spay or switch rod is a traditional tool. And, you know, thank God they've got them in the boat because, you know, again, uh, at the end of the day, the craft, the craft matters. But, you know, these guys have certainly stirred up some stuff over there based on harvesting. And when I say harvesting, I don't mean the killing of fish, but rather just the volume catch and the bravado that goes with it and, you know, numbers, 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 numbers. Whereas April, you and I could, you know, come down cut bank in the lower Dean mm -hmm. and hook two fish between 8 a.m. and 11 right. and basically right. walk away for the day, mm -hmm. um, you know, smiling head to toe. So, you know, it's a different deal. But do I think it's bad? I still think it comes down to individual angler ethic and behavior and you know if a guy's catching four six eight twelve fish in a day how are those fish being treated i mean you know they're being hooked they're being landed how are they being treated any, any different than uh you or i walking into a prime run on the hoe or the bogus shield or the queets or a guide trip on the quinault mm -hmm. and sticking a fish with a spay rod and landing them. And, you know, how are we treating that fish? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a lot of it. it. Because unless there's an outright ban on fishing, that sort of methodology, it ain't going away. It's not going away. Even if the guides dried up to some degree, particularly the non-resident guides that get most of the heat, Mind you, not not completely, but they get most of it. Um, the consumer element, the angler, whether he's a resident or non-resident, has learned this stuff and, and can duplicate method, style, and, and, and boat. He can do all of this. Mm -hmm. He can and does. Um, Is the so, pressure on the OP just exploding right now? Well, that's April. That's that's. It's been exploding. It's been exploding since 19... 95, when 97, 98, when the Skykomish, the Sock, and the Skagit yeah. went to restrictive periods of angling. Mm -hmm. And those fisheries are closed at this juncture beyond February 1, which means the, the historic spring fishing, um, let's call it all of February, March, and April, mm -hmm. that historically would have gone on for wild fish between, let's just call it December 1 and May 1, that's been taken away based on conservation measures and, and best practices. And, you know, we may see those fisheries come back. We've seen the Wenatchee and the Methow in eastern Washington come back online for fishing in September and October, certainly in October. Um, and those fisheries were lost 
uh, in terms of open angling opportunity in the 1990s. And I, for one, would have guessed we would have not seen those come back online. And we have. And so that hope for the Skycomish, a mere 35 minutes north of Metro Seattle, Mm -hmm. the fabled sock and Skagit, because those things shut down essentially Mm -hmm. February 1 on, there was an equatorial shift to the west, to the peninsula. And to some degree, greater angling pressure that roved into Oregon, although certainly not near uh, the pressure that's gone to the Olympic Peninsula. The Oregon coast is is still uh, relatively um, unscathed Mm -hmm. compared to, say, the Olympic Peninsula. What's it done to your sales? I mean, are are you finding your sales are staying the same? Are they increasing, decreasing? Closing, I mean, the Sock and the Skagit, we used to do that trip every, you know, every March, every April. And I know it's driven us to the OP, but honestly, there's times where I just, I don't know, I go saltwater fishing instead. What's it done to your sales? Well, at Without first, getting too pertinent. No, no sure, 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 sure. I don't want to tie up the mic on, on this, but it, at first, so let's call it 1997 to 2004, so roughly an eight-year period, it really, really affected the Puget Sound region tackle dealers Mm -hmm. because they lost their home water. Inevitably, the consumer, the angler, the fishing public, which includes you and I, Mm -hmm. um, will shift. We might shift west. In my case, I tended to spend more time in Oregon than the Olympic Peninsula because it wasn't hard to see that the masses would gather. Uh, where again, whereas Oregon remained, you know, relatively calm and stable. I think as you travel Oregon and you talk to people, you know, from Portland to Medford, you'll find that that's um, still largely the case. You know, there'll be a stream here or there that's got a lot of pressure on it, but still, um, it's it's a different scene than it is up here. In that tackle sales stabilize and to some degree they shifted. Portland still has two absolute rock solid metro steelhead fisheries in the Sandy and the Clackamas. And those rivers geography wise to Metro Portland represent what the Snoqualmie and the Skycomish represents to Seattle. And so what you really saw happen is you saw the Spay universe go from Seattle and shift to Portland, largely because of those metro fisheries Mm -hmm. in the fabled Deschutes, a mere 100 miles to the east. So you saw a tackle shift in terms of the the Spay universe went from uh, the clear uh, city that would be king, Seattle, and it shifted to Portland. And it, it is still in Portland, and it's based on fisheries. And, you know, that's not a bad thing. It's simply a shift. And maybe one day the, these rivers will return to their greatness and we'll have those spring fisheries, which, frankly, for you to drive down from B.C., you could be on the Skagit quicker than me from here. Mm-hmm. So we all maybe can enjoy those and and um, have some realm of normalcy in terms of, you know, 12-month fisheries. Coming up, George describes the first time he cast a two-hander, the spay tackle revolution, and fly fishing for kings. 
After the show, please visit the Woldridge Boats page on Facebook. The Woldridge family has been building custom boats for over 100 years, and there you'll gain some insight as to what goes into the construction of such remarkable watercraft. You mentioned something. You mentioned the spay. So you would know this better than anybody. When did you see, what, what's, your, what's been your biggest year for spay rod sales? Because I remember still in, in 2001, I mean, still in the early 2000s, you would still be getting people looking at you going, what's that crazy thing? And now everybody has a spay rod, it seems. What, what, what do you think? Is it going to start to slow down? What's happening with the spay rod world? Or the double hand, the sure, double hand world? Sure, sure, sure. Well... Let's let's take a step back in time. Yeah, tell me because um, you were there from the beginning. I was, and I, my spay rod, my spay rod starting point is a great one. And uh, since you're about to see Jim Teeny, this is all going to mesh together in a great humorous manner. Yeah. So my my first experience with a spay rod was in 1985. Wow, George, in, I would have been two years old. Probably yeah. a year and a half, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> You'd have been double spaying from diapers, dear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, in 1985, a regional, maybe a national rep from Hardy, Hardy of England, walked into Kaufman's, and we sold a fair amount of Hardy reels at that time, appreciable amount, to, to be exact. And he came in with this thing called a spay rod. And I was all of 24 years old. And he said, you know, I'd like to leave this with you guys, and, and you guys get a little water time on it. And I think there was a couple of us there that day, maybe. I know I was. And I think Mark Bale, who's the longtime national and now international sales manager at Sage, he worked there as well, as did John Farrar, another oh, cool. steelhead um, guide casting legend here in the Pacific Northwest. And so this guy left this rod, and it was a 14-foot nine weight. Um, <laughs> he left it, and I promptly raised my hand, grabbed it, and went out on the Skykomish River the very next day. What kind of line was it was on? Well, here you go. <laughs> I'm here. scared. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Be scared. Be very, very afraid. <laughs> so I took this rod. This gentleman didn't say anything about lines. Uh, it would be like handing me this beautiful recurve bow in front of me with no arrows and no conversation on arrows and just go, hey, here you go. Yeah. <laughs> and so I didn't know anything about lines. Nobody was talking about lines. So essentially, I put the spay rod in the car and I grabbed from a tackle bag the obvious line to put on any fly rod in the winter time, which would be a teeny 300. Okay. <laughs> a teeny 300. I grabbed a teeny 300 <laughs> and I went, I went to a run on the sky comish that I'd caught a steelhead in a mere five days earlier. So I had utter confidence in the run. I walked in, I strung up the rod, the 14 foot nine weight hardy, spay rod with whatever reel I had a teeny 300 on, can't remember at this juncture, rigged it up, popped out the head, which is 24 feet, and proceeded to kind of sort of maybe roll cast. <laughs> and I would say after maybe a mere 10 minutes, I probably looked a lot like a monkey fucking a football. 
Yes. <laughs> I bet I did. And I'd say after 15 minutes, I was contemplating walking back to the truck for my 896 with that same fly line. 896 Sage RP, which I knew would work. And I would tell you after a half hour, if someone would have offered me a spinning rod, I would have gladly traded them for it. I'm surprised you didn't break it over your knee. No, no. And I didn't stay out there very long. I doubt I was out there an hour because it just wasn't happening. It just wasn't. And so I put that spay rod down and I would not pick up. I dismissed, dismissed spay casting at that moment. And I did not consider, look at, pick up a spay rod until 1991 and in 1991 I was I was now the sage rep in the Pacific Northwest spay rods were starting to have some play largely because of two factors British Columbia influence uh, coming south that's right Mike Maxwell and Jimmy Green Mm -hmm. of Fenwick sage fame basically coming from the east as he lived on the Grand Ron and fished the snake in Grand Ron very avidly in the golden years of his uh, life. And so there was starting to be a little play for it in 91. There wasn't a lot of play, but there was a little bit of play. And by 1992, now it was starting to be a conversation. And by 1994 and 95, you were starting to see a shift. And what are you saying during all this? Are you hesitant because you had a bad experience? No, I, I, you know, I remained uh, in the non-spay closet for a solid six years. <laughs> yeah. And in 1991, one of my dealers, one of my really, really good Seattle area dealers, asked me to teach a spay class. And at that point in time, I was a mere 30 years old. And... Uh, I knew just enough about some basics that I thought I could do this. Mm-hmm. And so on a Friday, I prepared to do a spade class on Saturday. You're going to love my preparation. At approximately, I already love it because it's Friday. At, and at, you're it's Friday. It's the day before. Nothing like the 11th hour, dear. <laughs> I had gotten my mitts on a video that had come from England. Hugh Falkus, Falkus on casting. Yeah. Maybe the godfather of uh, spay casting in the modern era in the United Kingdom. I'd gotten my hands on this, um, you know, VCR tape. And at 3 o'clock p.m. on Friday, I plugged it in and I proceeded to watch (laughs) Falkus on casting. And I watched him show the single spay and the double spay. And at 4 o'clock... I put it in a second time, and I watched it a second time. And at 8 o'clock the next morning, I went and taught a spay class. I taught a class of six guys, the single spay and the double spay, and that was probably 3,000 students ago. Wow. So you never, you never looked back after that? Well, the, the, the trend, the industry... Um, the whole forward momentum wasn't going to let any of us look back. And by 1994, 95, the spay rod was, was rapidly becoming more common. By 1998, 2000, it was rapidly showing itself as the omnipresent tool mm-hmm. in, across the entire uh, 
Pacific Rim. And today, I mean, I always like to tell guys that in 1995, if you went on a steelhead river, say, it could be the Deschutes in September, it could be the Clackamas in March, it could be the Ho in February, that in 1995, if you saw 20 guys fishing, you probably saw about seven of them. Maybe, yeah, I'd say five to seven of them fishing a spay rod. You go find those 20 guys today, 19 of them are fishing a spay rod yeah. or a switch rod. That's, so it's had, it's had a major, major shift, um, similar to archery's movement from the recurve bow to the compound, a very similar shift, all, you know, to some degree, uh, similar time frame. So technology, as it relates to rods, lines, bows, a lot of this stuff is kind of all rolling up in, in somewhat of the same time period. Not exactly, but somewhat. The big explosion in Spay, as you well know, came in the early 2000s when the Skagit line mm-hmm. came on board and essentially replaced the Jim Vincent wind cutter, mm-hmm. which had had a 10-year run at that juncture, a very marvelous 10-year run. And it put the sink tip into the Spay angler's hand. The Skagit took guys from... From bow hunting to rifle hunting. Mm-hmm. They, they were now rifle hunting. And, you know, now it's all a blur. You know, we right. don't think anything of it. The Skagit line has had quite a revolution over the last, essentially, uh, 13 years. So something that's always been really interesting to me, um, it's, it's, it's the old guard. So a lot of them are really hesitant, and they just flat out refuse to, to follow uh, the, the double hand I'm not going to say trend because it's not a trend. They're just refusing to fish that methodology. And it's very confusing to me because a lot of them will reference it as, oh, the new age anglers and the new anglers and the new rods. And I'm confused because double hand rods have been around for hundreds of years. I mean, they're one of the the oldest, most traditional methods of fishing that there is. So why isn't the old guard or why are a lot of the old guard so against going back to our roots as they were hundreds of years ago? Is it that they're against Skagit fishing? Well, this is all very real. You know, what you speak is it's very real. It's evident. It's out there. It's still out there. It'll always be out there. I, I think a lot of people find objection to the lines because it, in the minds of some, it is somewhat a shortcut to mastering the craft of spay casting. Now, I'm going to pick on the motherland of England a little bit. Mm-hmm. They, those folks in Europe in general are very traditional um, they're used to working with very traditional casts such as the single spay which is the single hardest spay cast to get good at it's very true the double spay which is frankly the easiest one to get good at yet the Skagit line it, it, it born and bred a whole new ball game which largely is North American, or as I like to call it, April, the colonist at work. <laughs> and the Queen was not happy with the colonists some years ago, <laughs> and a lot of the traditionalists are not fond of the colonists now. So the Skagit line brought forth a whole family of cast, the Snap Tea, the Peri Poke, the Wombat, various iterations of these 
uh, very North American animals. And all of this, you know, it has taken the spay mothership across the Atlantic and planted that flag pretty firmly in the Pacific Northwest. And whether you're in Vancouver, B.C., Seattle, Portland, Sacramento, Boise, there, that, there's a landmass on the West Coast that really has become the new epicenter. Uh, the pilgrims have done landed, and they're over here. And um, the double taper has disappeared. The full sinking line uh, on the spay rod has largely disappeared. Yeah, it, it certainly has in, in North America, and with good reason. I was going to say, it's, thank God. Oh, yeah. I mean, but, you know, people, people, a lot of guys have a problem with the Skagit because it's not drawing out that caster, that angler, to really go through the internship that the viewpoint is that that method, the spay, should represent. And there's some truth in that. Um, because to throw a snap tee or throw a wombat cast, which is, as you know, is a hybrid between a snap tee and a peri poke, I can get a guy on the water and probably within a half hour have him functioning at a level that you or I as a guide could get him into fish. Well, we'd get him in the game. Mm-hmm. You know, Lady Luck and, you know, good clean living might help him into fish, but we'd have him in the game. Right. And we're not going to get that done in 30 minutes with a single spay. Uh, we couldn't even hope to do that. And remember, hope is not a strategy. Right. <laughs> and in this, I think there's people that's, you know, kind of frown upon some of this because it. Again, it shifted things to America, to the Pacific Northwest. The Skagit line represents the colonists at work. And so there's, there's still some, you know, opinion, dissents, blah, 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 blah. Yet, you could go to the United Kingdom today, you could go to Scandinavia, and you could find people who are as rabid fans of a Skagit line as you could in Portland, Oregon. So, you know, yet we still have traditional lines. We still teach traditional casting. We teach left hand up. We don't teach cack-handed all the time, although the cack-handed cast (laughs) is the best friend of the colonists. Um, But in this, there's room for both schools. And I think as guys stay in the sport longer over a duration, they, they filter back to floating lines, mid to long bellies, single spay, double spay, snake rolls. And they, they do things that kind of create a balance. And, and it's all there for the taking. And, mm-hmm. you know, we can all tip a cocktail in the evening to the to the whole of the sport. What about the argument that by fishing skagit lines and by fishing these sink tips and these large flies that we're catching more fish and it's giving us the illusion, as Bob Hooten says, the illusion that there are more fish than there really are. Do you think that's something that holds any truth? I think it's all subject to opinion. There's there's not more fish. I mean, you and I can get in the car right now and drive up on the North Fork of the Stillaguamish and we can walk into Fortson Hole and we can wade across the river and get on the high bank side. Mm-hmm. 
And we'll see some steelhead in there, particularly if the sun's right. And the water is super low this year, as it is everywhere in the West Coast. And I don't know how many fish we'd see in there, but we'll see some fish. I don't know how many we might see. We might see half a dozen. We might see 16. Now, I can tell you unequivocally, in 1976, 1975, 30 years ago. No, that's more than that. It's 40 more years than that, ago. yeah. Holy mackerel, you just I ate myself. Yourself, yeah. <laughs> if we walked in there in 1975, we wouldn't see six fish. We'd see 206 in 60 yards of that run. And it's so opportunity abounded. I mean, uh, that was the heyday of rivers like the Kalama. Uh, so many, many, many rivers. So, you know, A, we know there's less fish. There's less opportunity. Now, that's coincided with more advanced equipment, more effective rods, lines, flies, sink tips. That part's gotten better. So, in some ways, we missed it. We missed it. If I'd have had just a seven-weight switch rod with some of this stuff in 1975, I can't fathom what I could have gotten done, okay? You know, some of this is an evolution. The same thing's going on, uh, you know, you're not here to talk to me about bow hunting, but the same thing has occurred there. I was actually have wondered about that. Is you've seen things go from long bows to recurves to compound bows. Um, yeah, I could hand you my wife's bow, and, and you know, if I get you to pull it back at 35-pound pull, which I, I know you can do because you're powerful, is I could have you shooting into the size of this cup, I think, probably in 15 minutes. Now, as somebody said to me a while back, he referred to today's compound as a vertical crossbow. So, so this is taking place in that theater. The spay rod and the skagit line is taking place in that theater. But again, these things are here. We're, we're not going to outlaw them. We're not going to get rid of them. We don't need to get rid of them. Again, individual behavior and ethic is the heart of any matter, whether it's hunting, fishing, cycling, backcountry skiing, doesn't make any difference. So I think it all makes for interesting debate. Yeah, I'm a rep. Yeah, I want to sell equipment. But I wouldn't have any problem selling nine and a half and ten foot seven, eight, nine weights in the 1990s uh, in the lines that went with them, the, the teeny 300 mm-hmm. as an example. Way to go, Jim. Yeah. Um, so there's an evolution. And but why do you think the evolution is now, I know in my circle anyway, and with myself, I've done a complete cycle back. I mean, I'm searching for the old stuff. I want to be back on bamboo and longer lines. I mean, hell, I've got a silk line I've been fishing and the traditional Scottish patterns. And I'm noticing that it is a bit of a trend right now where a lot of the people who were all about the new age graphite lines, huge flies, they seem to be kind of circling back into the more traditional method. Is that happening with hunting as well? Yeah, to some degree. And why? Um, why are we doing that? Well, and is it I going think, to crash the industry? I mean, are there enough no. newcomers comers that it's going to be okay? 
Well, that's a whole nother interview, that okay. one. Um, maybe sometime we can do that one. Um, I think you're seeing, I think you see this evolution. You see it, you see it in sport. You, you, you've caught, I'd be scared to ask you how many steelhead you've caught. But I'm going to guess it's north of a thousand. Okay. I think people get to a point. I got to this point in hunting. I've killed 40 mule deer at Squover 170 Boone and Crockett. I've killed 15 at Squover 190. A mule deer over 190 is equivalent to a steelhead over 20 pounds. How big is that middle one? That's a white tail. He's 190 inches. Okay. That's a 35 pound steelhead. That. If you're trying to make a comparison. So, but the point is. I've done so much of this with guns, I came back to archery. And I came back to it because, frankly, shooting a deer with a rifle is too easy. And even killing big deer had become too commonplace. I'm not going to say it was too easy, but it had become, for me, too commonplace. So I've come back to archery, which essentially has started the game over. The game has started over. So... If I went from a nine and a half foot eight weight single hander to a fourteen foot nine weight spay rod to a twelve and a half foot seven weight spay rod, and suddenly I'm coming back to a nine foot eight weight bamboo rod with a floating line. Where do you go from there, though? Uh, well, I I don't know. I'm not gonna worry about it. Right. Okay? <laughs> I got a Bob Clay thirteen foot five eight weight bamboo spay rod upstairs I'm contemplating taking it to Alaska please for do it's the best thing I ever did yeah well it's super cool there's no doubt but I think people have individual evolutions and the beauty of it is they're still on the water they're still driven by moving water passion for fish and everybody rather it's a 19-year-old college student in Eugene, Oregon, at the University of Oregon, fishing the lower, lower Umpqua in March with an indicator, or it's the professor at the University of Oregon who tries to get a little time in with Mr. Frank Moore on the North Umpqua fishing a floating line on a 9 to 10 foot 8 weight, mastering roll casting, with a size two green butt skunk, it it's it's all it's all a village, and the village is fishing, and I'm not I'm not going to get caught up in this as a rep, but nor am I going to get caught up in in it as an angler. You have a recurved bow in front of you. The viewers can't see this, but this is a blacktail bow from Reedsport, Oregon. It's a recurve. It's got coca bow and zebra wood. It's beautiful. It's really, really beautiful. In the other room are three Bowtech bows that are the Ferraris. And in that gun stave out there is a Remington 300 Ultra Mag and a Weatherby 300 Mag. And there is there is evolution there. And it could be a bamboo rod that is this. It could be the two-hander that is is over there. And it could be... The single hander over there. It's the same game. It's just this theater versus that. And I'm not going to worry about the guy rifle hunting or the guy with this. I'm not going to worry about the guy with the spay rod and the indicator guy. I just hope that they bring passion to the water 
and that they bring an ethic that every one of these steelhead that get caught by any means is a treasure. End of story. And I always think about that, you know, when, when there's criticism coming towards people who are trying to learn, say, the Skagit, or they're using eggs, or whatever it may be. I mean, I always remember I was a bait fisherman, and a lot of people tried to intimidate me away from the sport. And if I had listened, I never would be, you know, fishing dry flies today for steelhead. I'm sure back then someone seeing me with dirty orange fingernails fishing bait, they never would think that, you know, in 15 years, that girl's going to be out fishing a dry, you know, a dry fly for, for some of the best steelhead on earth. So we have to remember that, that everybody has has their own journey and we just can't stand in their way. So there you are. Very important. Now let's talk about something that is very fascinating to me. Criticism is something that is natural in, in evolution and in the sport. And so in the mid-1900s, Richard Waddington, also an Atlantic salmon angler, he decided that he was going to start to make this um, completely you know, 360-profiled fly. So he kind of got rid of the feather wing, and he went with a fly that had the same profile all the way around. Now today, that's pretty standard for us, right? I mean, think about the popsicle. That's got a 360 profile for the most part. And he was met with a ton of criticism. And I'm curious if you had the same sort of criticism when you went from having the more traditional patterns to these uh, popsicles, the intruders, these big flies. Were you met with a lot of uh, a lot of raised eyebrows from the old guard and from people before you? And how did you overcome that, or did you? Well, I didn't. Um, when when the intruder first hit, number one, those guys did a fantastic job of hoarding them. What do you mean? Well, the, the, the guys who really started that craze, Scott Howell, Ed Ward, Jerry French, um, those three, the three spaketeers, um, those guys did a fantastic job of absolutely keeping that as a deathly secret to why, themselves. Why? I mean, what was their reasoning? Well, they were the inner sanctum. They're still, to some degree, the inner sanctum. And they, they, had, they had some methods and they had some flies and they had some advantage and that number one they were the only ones who had this stuff really and so and they were successful with it and they were successful in such a manner that they wanted to protect that uh rather it be because of their own individual angling or their guiding and i can recall a conversation with scott howell where as a fly rep I didn't know if he wanted to A, just straight up kick my ass, or B, hand me his patterns. Well, fortunately, it was B. He handed me some of his signature series flies, which I got on a royalty basis for him that, that holds true to this day. And his signatures, I mean, we're talking way before Squidrow. We're talking back in the day. We're talking about Scott right now, right? Yeah, Scott Howe. Yeah, so Edward designed the Intruder. Ed, what is Jerry it? French, Scott Howe were was let's call it the founding committee. Got it. And they okay. would tell you that any one of those three would tell you that. Right. Um, and there were others that were you know Scott O'Donnell was right there, uh, uh, Deck Hogan. These these guys were all at the epicenter. That's incredibly accurate history for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, when, when I found out about these, you know, we had, you hear the rumors, oh, those guys have got some, you know, they got this fly called an intruder, and I go, 
well, do I bring a pistol and a nightstick to see, meet this fly? What do I do? <laughs> um, and so when I first saw some, I, I had no in, inhibition about, well, this is going to take over the throne of the popsicle, which, <laughs> no, no. I was like, how do I get some? And maybe if I can just get one. I can get some more because I can get one of my pet tires <laughs> to to tie some. But were, were the fly shops looking at these things going, oh my God, are you serious? Those are ridiculous. They're no, huge. no, I wouldn't say that because because there was a bubbling. There was a bubbling of all the stuff, you know, the, the spay rod, uh, the wind cutter line, the, the skagit line, the sink tip, uh, the world beyond lead core, um, you know, is a way to get down and fish and there were so many guys that were kind of in this game or some of the guys that were kind of that age bracket that came up next the Brian Sylvies um, the Kenny Morshes we we all kind of saw what the storyline was a lot of us had guided in Alaska and if you guided in Alaska whether it's next week on the Nishigak or it was 19 85 on the Nishigak in my case, the one thing you knew unequivocally, unequivocally, was that a quick fish or a crocodile spoon, and the pixie at times seems like it's the state bird of Alaska, it's airborne more than the bird. <laughs> uh, these things worked and worked incredibly well for kings, and they all had a common denominator. They were, they were being plied at the right depth, they had a profile. They had flash. So all these guys that were involved in these things. And so we saw we were a part of these methods. And, you know, trolling a teaspoon, uh, Skagit spinner, really, essentially, uh, downstream in a flood tide. And doing all these things, big profile was readily apparent as a key to success. The right depth with visibility and these things worked, and we caught Chinooks at will. And so, so many of these things that suddenly were, were beginning to be mined by the angler, uh, the Skagit boys, again, that group, uh, had to do with larger flies, creating larger profiles, being fished off deeper sinking sink tips, that the revolution was underway, and that this would, this would become... Basically, this would turn the Chinook side of things in Alaska upside down. Mm -hmm. And it would inevitably prove to be quite quite the thing for steelhead fishing, largely in the winter, but to some degree, anytime sink tips are employed. So, yeah, as a Chinook fisherman, and I'll be on the Nishkak here in a mere two weeks, if, if we're still trying to do this with a wind cutter, we're not fishing intruders. We'd be still fishing, you know, a size 2-aught Super Prawn, which was simply the next generation of a GP. Right. Uh, we'd be fishing those on a 15-foot, 150-grain Type 6 or Type 8 on a wind cutter. But why do Chinook need such large profile flies? Is it because they simply can't see that well? Or is it because they need something really aggressive coming at them? Well, I think if, if you want to... Join my wife and I on the Nishigak, and if you want to take 
a silk line on a bamboo rod yeah. and a number eight blue charm. I wouldn't do that to Jerry Wintel would be so proud. Oh, he would. He, he would. <laughs> and I'll even let you have first walk. <laughs> yeah. And we'll see how it goes. Oh, I know. Um, Guiding on the dean, know, I know. <laughs> never. You know, one of my favorite sayings about sink tips is never bow hunt when rifle's open. Are they just hugging the bottom? And why? Well, they're is suspended. it because it's cool? Why? You know, Chinook are no different than steelhead or, or rainbows or anything else mm -hmm. some of them are six inches from the bottom and some are six inches below the top and a lot of times they're more suspended but even with these fast sinking lines t14 which sinks at nine inches a second t17 at, at 10 and t20 t20 that sinks at 10 and a half inches <laughs> um, there's no such thing as too deep too hot of a girl too much money or too dead of a brown bear. <laughs> um, as fast as these things are, once they're engaged in the current and they're swinging in that current with that fly, they are never as deep as you would believe they are. Do you think that fly fishing for Chinook, or I'm sorry, King Salmon, is severely underrated in North America? No doubt. Compared to steelhead fishing or trout fishing, it is. And it's, it's not an easy game, you know, Steelhead are historically non-feeders once they enter freshwater. Chinook are a level past that. You know, stuff like chum salmon and silver salmon are easily caught on flies, largely because they're aggressive and mostly because they're in water where it's very easy to present a fly to them. Mm -hmm. They're also in huge numbers. And, you know, if you've got a pack of, you know, 100 of them across a 40-yard run in a river in that, in that pack, there's a bunch of alphas, and we can catch those alphas. With Chinook, we don't have as many. They're deeper. Um, they're, they're not feeding, and we gotta, we got to find those alphas, or we got to find the water with those alphas, maybe more importantly. And so it's a game of, it's a game of numbers. You know, we're, It's going to be a lot of casting. You better be in love with casting. Mm -hmm. uh, but all in the is fishing that way. I think we'd all agree with that. Everybody you talk to would tell you. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. In the next episode, I'll be traveling to Oregon to meet with the one and only Jim Teeny. Stay tuned.